From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. One of the big challenges in higher education today is polarization in the classroom, which of course reflects the polarization of the country at large. Professors like Dr. Amy Ullman are trying to figure out how to encourage their students to speak and listen to each other across divides on complex social issues where there are no easy answers. Amy is a professor at the Georgetown Law Center, where she's also a special assistant to the dean and the director of mission and ministry. And just in case that's not enough to keep her busy, Amy is also a senior research fellow at the Berkeley Center on Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. I was excited to ask her to talk about her work at the intersection of faith, morality, and law, and also maybe see if we could tease out some lessons that those of us who aren't in law school could use when trying to connect with people we disagree with on thorny issues. Amy is also a member of the Focolare Movement, which is a lay ecclesial movement and an international organization that was founded in Italy by a woman named Chiara Lubic in 1943. Focolare is centered on Christ's prayer from the gospel that they all may be one. So it's clear to see how Amy's faith life is leading directly to her research and work on building communion in the classroom. She is one of the smartest, loveliest, and most faith-filled people I have ever met. And I'm so glad to be sharing this conversation with you. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. Amy Ullman, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time to come in person for an in-person recording. It always makes me excited that we can do that again uh, here in beautiful Washington, D.C. Um, thanks for taking the time. The day before your semester opens and you're here chatting with me. Uh, so again, I appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, how are you? I'm delighted to be here. And I love uh, in-person time. And it's just been a delight also to... Uh, come to this beautiful space and get to know uh, the staff here as well. Yeah, any listeners ever in Washington, D.C., we have a, a, we're just celebrating our one year in our new building, uh, and we're back here most days. You come stop by. It is a beautiful space in the DuPont Circle neighborhood. And uh, and I'm excited to, I, to have you on, Amy, because I heard you talk at a churchy conference um, about listening and polarization, and as a teacher about classroom polarization, and you just, I think, hit on some points that I found really interesting. And I thought, oh, you talked only for, I don't know, five minutes, but I thought we got to, I would love to have her on to talk about some of those things. Because those are questions that I'm, I know we face certainly in higher ed, questions of polarization, talking across boundaries, listening, and some of the, all the, the challenges in that. But then also things that like, how are we at, at doing that with people outside of the academy in our own daily lives in our neighborhoods and our families. Um, how do we disagree with each other? How do we learn from each other even when we disagree? So these are challenging things, I think important topics and something you I know care about and have written about and teach about and talk about. So maybe we could start by like thinking of what are you seeing if, we, if you hear, hear about polarization in the classroom or polarization in the country that's reflected in the students you're seeing, maybe help us like set the stage a little bit. Like how would you describe some of the things that you're facing uh, as a professor today? So I, I, I've i been teaching now uh, for 20 years, uh, and, uh, and there are certain moments where I 
kind of step back and take stock uh, of, of trends and, and uh, aspects uh, of the classroom conversation that, that seem to be popping up more frequently, and especially challenges that I, I feel like I'm encountering more frequently. Um, and maybe I can put as a marker um, something I experienced in the classroom around the time of the um, Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, I remember watching those hearings and sensing in the uh, how the the questioning was going of, of Judge Kavanaugh um, that people were not really talking to each other. Uh, so there would be uh, lobbing a question, and we're in Washington, this happens all the time, right? But there seemed to be an intensity to it, lobbing a question, um, not for the purpose of having a conversation, uh, but for the purpose of making a point, um, and then answering the question, not for the purpose of engaging or responding to the question, but making another point for a different audience. And I started to see the risk of that pattern um, also in the classroom, even in relatively small settings where uh, it, it seemed to become increasingly hard for people to actually engage in conversation with each other and answer each other's questions or be informed by each other's perspectives. Uh, and uh, that just, that disconnect seemed to increase every semester and at times it felt almost like every 10 minutes <laughs> in teaching and so um, so part of the work that I've been doing is is trying to noodle over how to change that up as a dynamic all right so let's talk about how we change that up as a dynamic so what are you I'm sure you've tried things that didn't work so well you tried other things that were, what are some of the things where you're either working with students or, or writing about this um, that you think are like kind of key to actually having a conversation with someone talking not just to make a point or to make a performative point to some audience, but actually engaging the person in front of you? Like, What are some of those, those things you've, you've hit on? So I think the, the biggest point for me is to, is to slow the pace uh, of, first of all, reflection. Uh, and that part of the problem is when students or in any conversation when we're kind of reacting in the moment uh, and don't always have enough time to really think through uh, exactly what ideas we hold and why we hold them. So one of the techniques that I feel is most important is to give students time uh, to write and reflect before they come into a classroom or discussion. And so to turn their papers in, uh, whether they're longer reflections or shorter blurbs, to turn those in uh, a full 24 hours before class. And then that gives me time to also absorb them, get a sense of what are the pressure points, kind of prepare uh, in that way, uh, prepare to really understand the human beings in front of me and what they're struggling with. But for the students to, uh, to come into a conversation already holding what they think about the readings or the topics. And that tends to greatly reduce uh, the, the sense of reactivity, uh, but also greatly increase the, the, the experience 
that someone is listening deeply to them even before they step into that conversation. And so it tends to reduce anxiety. I'm not saying it's none, of, none of these things are a silver bullet. There's always problems that pop up. But I would say that would be the first and most important thing. Uh, I think students struggle with the idea that if you don't have an immediate, hot, intense reaction, you care less. Mm. Uh, and so the work that that uh, that that I try to do uh, in in many different educational settings is to actually first convince them that it is helpful to slow down, to slow down the pace, and to give the time that they need for that kind of reflection. Maybe before we get into more of the kind of process of this, like what are some of the the topics that are coming up in in class for you? I imagine things that often that do come up too for us, like outside of the the classroom, but just to help like have a a picture, what are some of those things that end up being challenging points for for students to talk about? So I think the the hot button political questions are obviously the first thing that come to mind. Um, And again, sorry, I'd leap to methods, but (laughs) so in in the teaching that I do, I try to leave, lots of time at the front end of the semester to work really hard on methods before we have a conversation about euthanasia or abortion or even vaccines or racism and and so um and but i think it's not just that what they struggle with is how to hold their own convictions um and and their own sense of identity their own beliefs um, how to hold those in the same space with someone else who might be from a completely different worldview. Um, so one of the things that I think is most interesting is how um, people are, are point out you know, the differences in their family relationships. And so they'll say, well, I think this and this and this, and, but I can't have a conversation with my mom or with my grandmother. And so... Uh, a lot of the concerns are also intergenerational as they think about the communication challenges. Mm. I know you've talked and written some too about even what listening is, which to me you hear, oh, listening, yeah, let's listen. You listen to anyone, but that even the act of listening can sometimes be a challenge or even trying to invite someone to listen to someone else. There might be some some reaction to that, that maybe even the act of listening itself could be seen as validating something you don't agree with or listening to be ready to then make your point to to quash the other person. So could you talk a little bit about about the practice of listening? And, yeah, yeah. I, one of the one of the most stunning moments that I had um, in, in teaching a, a couple of years ago was realizing how hard it was for the students to tease out the difference between listening and validating. Um, And that's really important for lawyers to learn uh, because so much of our work uh, is, um, you know, also just understanding the reality that's in front of you. And then it's another analytical motion (laughs) to to get to the point of whether you agree or disagree with that. And so, uh, but I think this intensity that many have experienced in their online interactions, uh, in how their temperaments are even trained by, uh, by Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. <laughs> uh, this sense that um, a, the, the, what counts is the immediate reaction um, just makes it really difficult to, to pull back. And so that's one problem. And then 
for those who are training in advocacy, especially um, this notion of uh, listening in order to refute, that I listen to you in a transactional way almost while I'm accumulating uh, bullet points in my mind of the things that I have as my comeback to prepare. Uh, and people feel that when you're listening in order to refute rather than to actually receive and understand their reality. Um, so a lot of the work is also it's slowing down enough to realize when I'm conveying one or the other sentiment in my stance in front of the other person. So we're in a, in a culture like swimming in this that is makes it hard to have these kind of slower, more thoughtful conversations um, with so much of our kind of interaction in the public that there is like sometimes like on social media anyway, that it's not just me to you, it's then the people who are like looking in on our conversation. So like what, so you're facing these challenges. So again, like can we, what are some of those things you'll practice early in this semester, even like kind of practically? And what are things that you find like kind of help prime the pump to help people get ready to have some of those those conversations? So first, I, I think um, when students themselves experience that somebody is listening. Uh, and that can take the form of how I read their work and then give feedback, um, or an office hours conversation where when I can, I deliberately take my watch off and don't look at my, my, uh, my phone for the time. Um, so just the experience of what it feels like when somebody actually tries to receive your full reality and your full person. Um, and uh, so I think the first thing that we can try to do is model that. Um, what does it mean to sort of make an interior space and sense of quiet um, in uh, cultivating conversational spaces, almost like you would a sacred space. Um, and so uh, I love this image of Pope Francis uh, where in um, the joy of the gospel where he talks about um, an encounter with another person is like Moses in front of the burning bush where you take off your sandals in front of sacred ground. And I think that's so powerful, this kind of culture of encounter that he talks about and how that, that makes, uh, that, that poses such a beautiful challenge for how we interact in our conversational spaces. Uh, so that would be uh, kind of one suggestion is first of all to model it. Uh, and then to create the kind of classroom or individual conversation space where you can just simply become aware of the ways in which uh, you might be jumping the gun or you might be listening in order to refute or you know, those kinds of habits and patterns are coming into play and uh, a kind of um, learning space where you can name that without shame, I mean, it's part of an educational experience. You learn it, name it, and then figure out how to course correct in the moment. Uh, the other thing I think to encourage is is letting go of sitting in front of a laptop or follow or you know letting go of having your phone constantly present. So this sense of an awareness of the way in which the constant presence of technology, can really get in the way of the work of reading somebody else's body language, of paying full attention to 
uh, their facial expressions to what they what they might be trying to communicate in other ways. Um, so even just pointing that out that that uh, you, we communicate with our whole body, um, and so also um, giving the opportunity to reflect on that as well. Are you able to share like any stories, either things that like went really right or things that went really wrong or things uh, learning experiences for you as you've kind of waded into this over the past few years? Um, that you know, for you are are good examples of uh, either the the power of kind of committing to some of these things or making these spaces or um, some of the the challenges we face. One one example that comes to mind, and this is kind of the combination of trying to pay deep attention. Uh, I I remember uh, noticing that a student uh, was always looking around the room before this student would speak. And uh, I had the opportunity to have an office hours conversation with this person uh, and just ask with simplicity, like, what's going on? And the student shared just this tremendous anxiety of either giving the appearance of judging somebody else or herself um, being judged by others. And so, and, and the, and the anxiety in, in this person's body language was just evident. And so I had on my desk, one of those goofy staples buttons, right? That's when you press it, it says that was easy. Right. (laughs) And so we, we just picked it up. Right. And, and said, okay, let's, let's redesign this, this imagine this button that every time you feel that kind of anxiety sort of percolating up, just imagine yourself pressing this button uh, and and it says, don't worry. <laughs> and so it was just such a, it was like a totally goofy thing. Uh, but, but this person did it. I mean, and I could see this amazing blossoming of the student's personality and capacity to worry much less about what was going on in the room, uh, really own uh, their own thinking, own their own ideas. Um, and so sometimes I think it's just a question of really paying deep attention uh, to the reality of the other person. And then, so maybe what works really well is also to build on these um moments of privacy right where you can you can just ask with simplicity what's going on this is what i see and the other person doesn't feel like under the spotlight or on the spot but that they can kind of open out what's going on in the interior um and then finding some simple kinds of workarounds or hacks to uh to address some of those concerns well, and i'm sure like that to me like I reson- that resonates for me, even not as a student, but like feeling like worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing and can feel that in work contexts, in internet communication contexts, in conversations. Am I going to say the wrong thing? And then what might happen? What will people think of me? What, like, what, am I risking something by saying the wrong thing? Um, which can lead to yeah, that, either that paralysis or that, that type of Anxiety, and I really, I can only imagine for students now, kind of swimming in that, especially like at a law school. Um, a lot of these students getting into this because they you know, really care about the law or justice, especially at a place like Georgetown. That fear of messing up and then what might happen. Do you feel like that is like a a stress that that student had that is is common? Oh, huge! Uh, that I, so this sense of um, 
leading a, a life where most of these students have been just incredibly successful, kind of by every measure. Uh, and the fear of making a mistake. And then I, I, I think the experience in their, their online experience of social media and the way in which you, you make a mistake and it remains there forever. Uh, so the kind of unforgiving nature of some of the uh, social and media interactions that they might have experienced um, and the impact on their friendships, the impact on their social life, I think has created just skyrocketing levels of anxiety. And so, so much of the work, I think that, that like someone of my need, generation needs to do um, is to, first of all, help them understand that, understand what's going on, why are they anxious, uh, and, but at the same time, work really hard to create those interior uh, moments, moments of reflection, or if they want to call it prayer or meditation, spaces where they can go within and own their own thinking and also own, you know, they don't need to have uh, 700 friends. They need to <laughs> cultivate a few uh, deep friendships that can help them discover and own what's important to them. Um, and so really supporting them in that kind of journey. This is, I think, a nice segue into some of the work you do as well as a mission officer for the law school as kind of like a ministry, campus ministry representative, thinking about those things. And before we started recording, kind of talking about how do we help our students and even, again, for ourselves, like cultivate the interior life that when we are, well, say in the legal field and you're, you're trying to work for justice and you're up against really hard challenges, um, just even for me as a parent, like with certain ideals, like up against a lot, um, it's easy to, to burn out or to just, or to lose interest or to feel like, what am I doing here? And like to what, what is it that, what are the resources we have in interiorly that we can draw on to help sustain us? And so curious, like what are some of those, those things that, you talk. You mentioned even one, like uh, if that's one student as an example. But some of the things that you uh, you talk about with um, with different students or even staff or faculty uh, about ways to kind of cultivate some of those uh, internal resources we can draw on in, in tough times. So our our mantra at the uh, campus ministry office at Georgetown Law is small is beautiful, um, and so I think we sense that. Uh, the time of sort of sitting still in an auditorium and taking in a speaker at a large event, uh, that can be appropriate for some things, but, um, but that's not what most students are looking for in terms of kind of regular programming. Uh, instead, they like to be in spaces where there's maybe, you know, eight to 10 people who can uh, really get to know each other, uh, where they can feel seen uh, where they're also perhaps accompanied by some uh, older folks <laughs> like myself of another generation, but largely there's this space for a kind of peer-to-peer -peer support where they can really help each other and get to know each other. Um, so that's that's one space where we've we've stopped worrying about creating like these large event, large and very populated <laughs> events. 
um, and focused more on uh, what is the quality of the relationships that and and maybe relationships that can continue from moment to moment over the course of a semester or a school year. Uh, where they can also explore uh, the the nature of friendship and 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 creating those those deeper kinds of bonds uh, that actually I think is the the best gift to come out of a school experience with is to is to come out with some really really solid and long lasting friendships. Can I ask you uh, for yourself, like uh, as someone again in the thick of this, and then also in, in your other work involved in. You know, different kind of social justice uh, in- initiatives and Catholic social thought, and so yourself have been in that in that role too, as someone who cares deeply about things and is up against a world uh, that can put you down. Um, for you, do you have like any uh, of your own like kind of uh, what are your go to things or the practices for you in your own kind of spiritual life that have that have supported you in in this work? So I live in a community. I live in a Focolari house. Uh, can we talk about? Can you talk about Focolari? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the Focolari is one of the ecclesial movements uh, in the Catholic Church, and its uh, work is largely focused on um, uh, areas of dialogue. So, uh, commitments to building greater unity within the church. Uh, lots of work for Christian uh, ecumenism. Uh, one of my greatest joys in life has been to have deep experience with Christian Jewish dialogue and so lots of work in interreligious dialogue in various parts of the world. So the overarching goal of the Focolari um, it comes out of uh, the founder Kiata Lubick's uh, contemplation with a group of friends on uh, the prayer of Jesus that all may be one. Uh, And so what does it mean to try to build unity in a world that is so hurting and fractured? Uh, And so so I have a, personally, I have a set of practices that comes out of our life and community. Uh, And I'll just maybe name the simplest one, which is um, trying to be together for dinner as much as we can um, and to cultivate uh, a very open, honest space that when someone says, how is your day, <laughs> that you can share with, uh, with sincerity and without fear, um, what, what are the actual challenges? And so I think these spaces of just open vulnerability and transparency uh, in community life uh, are for me the greatest school to then be able to bring into my professional environment. That seems like a charism that is very closely connected to this work you're doing now in your academic work. Like that all may be one sounds like what is, could undergird, you know, some of these, these things you're trying to build up within the class that, that they can, they can even, even when all disagreeing can still be one uh, with each other. Absolutely. I mean, the, so there's, there's kind of two really core principles to the spirituality. And so one is unity um, and th- there's like an expression of w- where there's a bridge to build is where we belong. And so to kind of go running in that direction, which, which often means running in the direction of where there is disunity or tension or conflict um, in, in various parts of the world, it, it, the, the challenges are so, so many. Uh, but the battery pack for doing that kind of work um, is to wake up each morning with a, with a commitment uh, to keep our eyes on Jesus on the cross, 
who cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this sense that uh, my, uh, the meaning in, in my commitments comes, first of all, um, out of a profound experience of the love of Christ. Uh, the culmination of that love is in the cross. Um, and so the, the work of letting myself be constantly transformed by that love and realizing that has to be the battery pack for this kind of work because otherwise it's, it's, we don't have any solutions or any fixes for any of these kinds of problems. They're all challenges of the heart. Uh, they're all really deep, deep, um, uh, impossible, impossibly difficult challenges. And so uh, it's only that caliber of love uh, of, of a God who took that kind of risk, I think, that can enter in. Mm. I, I do want to challenge us and my own self, I think especially in some of these conversations, um, toward unity, toward communion, um, that the importance of building bridges and dialogue across boundaries, that for me as like a white, straight, male, Christian father, well-educated guy, like that from my perspective is generally like, that makes sense to me, that seems easy. I don't feel like I have that much to lose or risk entering into conversations maybe with people who disagree. But I know I've heard from folks who would be in more marginalized communities, the sense of like, do you want to like use us so that like you can become more enlightened or like is this a threat to my very self by entering into a conversation with someone who doesn't think that I should exist or that my perspective is just totally wrong so just uh, your what are your own reflections as like how do we how can we do this while also kind of acknowledging that like what it means to like have dialogue or to cross bridges can mean very different things and can have very different stakes for different participants Absolutely. And I think this is a huge learning curve, uh, for, not just for so many individuals, but, uh, but really for so many communities. Uh, and so what does it mean to uh, cultivate uh, open spaces where um, a, we can also hear each other in those aspects of discomfort to say, you know, look, this is how you present and what you, you say you want to do. But in reality, what you're actually doing is taking over and bossing everybody around, right? And so so these kinds of, uh, I, I love um, how uh, Pope Francis actually challenged our community. Um, I, I, I'm blanking on the date when he came to visit our community in Lopiano. Uh, he challenged us uh, to hold close these two words, which is, and I'm going to, butcher the Greek, but parousia, right? Being able to speak boldly and frankly, and hippomone, right? Which is uh, the capacity to put up with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think we really can't have one without the other. And so uh, also the check that I don't always know when I'm blocking someone from completely expressing uh, what might be a, a deeper insight into how to build the kind of unity that that we're hoping for together and so i really need the help of my brothers and sisters to be able to speak boldly and challenge me to grow in my perspective 
And at the same time also, I mean, all communication is intersubjective. And so we don't always get each other on the first try. And so what is the kind of space that we need to um, even just get to know each other and get to know each other's quirks and limits and and challenges and stories uh, that can also, uh, where we can accompany each other with the eyes of mercy as we're trying to build something together. And I know you've said kind of in that work, you've written and I think spoken too about like the importance of one-on-one conversation that that can be, and we've talked about that, some, some examples of that, but that it can be that sort of like a buddy system in some ways, but like can enter into that that space as opposed to, again, being in a, a, big, a bigger, maybe more intimidating, a lot of people space with, with an audience. But that really, that kind of one-to-one can be such an important thing that hopefully now as the pandemic changes that we can we can do that more often in person. Absolutely. We, we, we used what we called the buddy system uh, with our, our own communities as we were preparing uh, for... Uh, in the middle of campaign cycles when uh, tensions can be especially hot in, in, in the community spaces. Um, and uh, so the, the, the idea that I've found very, very helpful and also um, just a source of great honesty with, with my own, with myself and the relationships that I'm building uh, is to be very deliberate in making uh, space for quality time to uh, reach out, spend time, get to know uh, people where I realize I have my own kind of growing edge in understanding someone else's experience. Uh, and so that could be along the lines of um, uh, differences in ethnicity or in race or religion or the L- LGBTQ uh, uh, background. Um, and so uh, the work of uh, taking the time to really get to know each other. And so whether it means going to a museum together, going out to lunch, having extended conversation about something that we've read together, uh, that I find is, is in some ways the greatest antidote to the, to the challenge you were mentioning before of just kind of living in our own bubbles or echo chambers. And I think we need to be really honest by looking at our calendars in terms of how much space is there for me to reach beyond kind of my comfort zone in terms of the f- types of friendships that I'm cultivating. Hmm. I've really uh, enjoyed this conversation. And before we go, I am curious for you as a, as a teacher getting ready to start another semester, are there any, like what are some of the the things you're seeing or, or teaching um, law students now, what just what are some of the, the topics beyond some, maybe something we haven't gotten a chance to, to talk about or some of your main interests or things you're looking forward to learning more about or, or teaching uh, either this semester or upcoming ones? Just uh, bring us into your, your intellectual legal life a little bit. <laughs> it's funny that the idea that's coming is not maybe not intellectual or legal at all, but um, I think the greatest challenge right now as we kind of get back into, in some ways, like greater speeds of activity after the pandemic um, is to make some hard choices for how to keep things sustainable and to not like get get back into a kind of rat race where we're running around with just re- feeling really packed and exhausted and, and running in a million directions. And so... Um, so I think actually one of my greatest interests is how to kind of keep activity levels 
um, sustainable so that I'm not getting exhausted, the people around me aren't getting exhausted, I'm not like pushing to, uh, to race around and try to accomplish a million things, um, but that it, I'm really able to, to guard that um, intimate space of, of reflection, of prayer, of, um, of contemplation, of really quality relationships, even if they're not zillions, but that's really quality time with people. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, one of one of the main challenges that I launch for myself in front of the semester. That kind of care uh, and um, and and readiness to let go when it when things just seem too much uh, in terms of commitments in order to. Uh, to be able to be a little bit more peaceful in 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 all of the other commitments and activities. And I mean, in your role as a campus ministry representative at the law school, kind of hopefully, like I imagine part of your work will be inviting other people to have those reflections themselves and that discernment. And you did share a story with me before we started recording. I was wondering if you could share, thinking about, again, the care of how you're caring for your students and the, the people who are around you. And I thought it was such a, a cool model for anyone in a institutional setting um, about how you were you connected with the uh, public safety officers at oh. the law school <laughs> so maybe you could uh, tell us like end our session with this which i found to be a really wonderful story so we we started a new program we just piloted it called the ethics of speaking the ethics of listening and uh, it was intended as a space uh, for staff to come together and reflect and we i'm working with a jewish colleague michael goldman who's our jewish chaplain uh, and we're using uh, the Hevruta uh, method of kind of text study in pairs where you just have a moment to reflect together, share your ideas. And, and so we did this for staff and, uh, and we, we didn't have in mind those who might have, who might not all be free during the lunch hour. And so we, we got an email from our, um, uh, the, the person in charge of the training for our Department of Public Safety, uh, our officers on campus, and it's a large group, they're about 45, uh, asking, can you do a version of this uh, for us? And it was such a beautiful moment, uh, also with, with, with Michael, uh, because we had not thought of it before. And, uh, and so we said, well, of course, yes, we can design this. And we ended up crunching it into, instead of a four-part series, it was a two-hour kind of training session. Uh, the first session was at seven in the morning. <laughs> and so, and uh, so the atmosphere of just sharing and open communication and reflection uh, among all of our officers um, and also the sense of community that we were able to build really with each of them. Um, for we got to this, we did this in December, so it was the end of the semester. Uh, we said this was really just one of the absolute highlights of our semester, this sense of working to build community uh, by also working together on our capacity to improve uh, our communication, our care for each other. Uh, and also just how we see each other in, in, in building a, a sense of community on campus. So yes, that was a huge highlight of the semester. Oh, I love that. Well, Amy Ullman, thank you so much for taking the time and for uh, all these uh, things to, to think about and hopefully to, to put into practice uh, whether we're uh, teaching law students or, or not. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you.
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>